Welcome, everybody, to this week's episode of Generation Jihad. I'm Tom Jocelyn, and I'm joined again this week by my colleague, Bill Roggio. Hello, everyone. We know it's a difficult time right now uh, with the coronavirus pandemic still spreading across the planet. Uh, We hope that all of our listeners, all of you, are as safe as possible and that you and your loved ones are as healthy as possible. Um, Hopefully, this podcast can be something of a distraction from the pandemic for you. Though, as you should know by now, uh, we don't cover any happy topics. This is no, this is not cheery time on Generation Jihad Radio here. Um, but and this week sort of illustrates the point. We're going to talk about ISIS, and in particular the state of the former so-called caliphate. We are also going to discuss some history, including events that Bill witnessed firsthand in Iraq when he was embedded there years ago, many years ago now. Bill, right? I mean, this is amazing how long ago this is now that you were there. In any event, it's been more than a year since ISIS lost the, uh, the last ground it controlled. In March 2019, the U.S.-led coalition announced the liberation of Baghouz in eastern Syria. It was in this last ramshackle town that ISIS made its last stand as a territorial caliphate. Of course, the end of this caliphate wasn't the end of ISIS. The group fights on today as an insurgency. Indeed, ISIS quickly uh, basically transformed itself or reverted to its insurgent roots throughout Iraq and Syria, with its men returning to the remote deserts and mountain areas from which they came. ISIS isn't close to the pinnacle of the power held in either Iraq or Syria today, of course, uh, but the jihadists claim multiple attacks across both countries each and every week. Um, In fact, we we download their claims and and try and verify them with independent media all the time. There's quite a staggering amount of operations still occurring. In any event, ISIS has continued to wage jihad now under its new leader, a man known as Abu Ibrahim al-Hashimi al-Qureshi. ISIS hasn't provided very many biographical details concerning its new Emir of the Faithful, but we know that this new Abu Ibrahim replaced Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, who was killed in October of last year in a U.S. raid in Syria. The U.S. government has identified Baghdadi's successor as a veteran Iraqi ideologue, who's also known as Haji Abdullah, and his writings have been used to justify ISIS's atrocities, including as the Yazidis in Iraq. Outside of Iraq and Syria, ISIS still has multiple so-called provinces, all of which are still loyal to Abu Ibrahim, a.k.a., according to the U.S. government anyway, Haji Abdullah. These were originally intended to be territorial extensions of the mother caliphate. In many of these areas, however, the provinces control little to no territory. Most of them are not nothing more really than terrorist outfits, but still, they're capable of carrying out an awful lot of violence each and every week. In alphabetical order, we were going through this, and I, I'm sure I missed some, but ISIS has a presence in all the following nations or geographic areas. Just think about this. Azerbaijan, Bangladesh, Central Africa, East Asia, meaning the Philippines, Kashmir, the Khorasan, meaning Afghanistan and parts of the surrounding countries, Libya, Pakistan, the Sinai, Somalia, Tunisia, West Africa, and Yemen. And again, I'm probably missing some, but I think you get the point. ISIS is still a worldwide network more than a year now after losing the last bit of territory in its so-called caliphate. This week, we're going to focus on Iraq in particular. Um, You know, Bill, uh, my longtime colleague here, did multiple embeds in Iraq, and it's out of Iraq that ISIS grew and it mushroomed into the international caliphate. Um, He embedded there multiple times, witnessing how the jihadis were laying the groundwork for their caliphate. So, Bill, when were you in Iraq and what did you see in general? Yeah, Tom, so I uh, actually did five embeds in Iraq, and an embed is where you um, get your press credentials and then you put yourself in with a military unit. 
Um, uh, between 2005 and 2008, I did five embeds in Iraq. I was in um, just about all areas of Iraq. I've been to Mosul. I've been to Fallujah, Ramadi on the border in Al Qaim. I've been to obviously to Baghdad, south of Baghdad, and even Wasit province, where um, with the that was with the Georgian army, and they were um, dealing with the Shia terror groups at the time. So, um, you know, it was a very interesting experience. Uh, I witnessed U.S. soldiers fighting alongside Iraqi soldiers, Iraqi police, um, what was known as the Awakening. Those were the, the tribal militias that rose up and fought against al-Qaeda. Some of them actually had sided with al-Qaeda at at very early on in the fight. Um, uh, even embedded with a Kurdish military unit up in Mosul in 2008. So it was, it was very interesting, very enlightening Um you know, one of the things I learned, um, one of several things that I learned was just there were plenty of Iraqis who hated al-Qaeda and they were willing to fight and, and die in the battle against these jihadists. The, one, something that's misunderstood is the, the people of Iraq or any other country where jihadists come, they're on the front lines of this. They're the ones who are, are absorbing all of the blows. The jihadists hate, almost hate them more than they hate us. Because they're they're considered bad Muslims for not following um, Islamic laws, they believe it should be followed. I've met Iraqis who had their hands chopped out, chopped off by jihadists because uh, they were smoking. Um, this was all um, they would torment vegetable sellers because they uh, put cucumbers and tomatoes side by side um, in the grocery cart. Uh, of course, cucumbers being male and tomatoes being female. It was this kind of craziness that Iraqis who were very far more westernized than you would see in like Afghanistan or many other places. This is what the, the Iraqis had to deal, deal with. They would hunt policemen down and kill them. They would target their families, run suicide bombers, um, up against anyone who they, who they disagreed with. It was a reign of terror. Um, so, you know, and this is all part of, Al-Qaeda's, Al-Qaeda in Iraq's uh, state-building process. It wanted to build an emirate in Iraq, and, and eventually Al-Qaeda in Iraq became the Islamic State in Iraq, and that's long before we had ISIS or the Islamic State in Iraq and Syria. That's what it branded itself self as. You know, and I guess you, know, you, br you brought up the point, Bill, about the jihadis being uh, ultra-puritanical when it came to their vegetables. I guess it's easy to see how they can be so strict with humans when they're willing to met out their punishments on anybody who's just handling, you know, cucumbers and, and uh, tomatoes. I mean, this is sort of the absurdity you're dealing with here. Um, and that's something that, of course, the U.S. and its allies took advantage of was the absurdity of this sort of ultra-strict puritanical ideology that they were trying to impose on Iraqis. But let's talk about um, going all the way back to 2005 now, which is sort of uh, striking. This is 15 years ago, Bill. I mean, incredible. Yeah. But let's go back to 2005 um, and your first embed. Where, where were you first embedded in Iraq? Yeah, so I um, in 2005, I landed in the um, western Anbar province. So that would be from Ramadi on west. East of Ramadi is Fallujah and that, er that area that is close to Baghdad. So the first time, so first time out, I, I made it into Ramadi uh, to the towns of Hit, Haditha, Al-Qaim, Hab and Habaniya in Anbar province. Um, in, in this area, the Marines and some U.S. Army and U.S. National Guard units, they were they were battling al-Qaeda. This was an area, by the way, you know, everyone credits General Petraeus with um, designing the surge and, and counterinsurgency. But the, the military units out here really were trying to fight a counterinsurgency, and they were, and they were having success doing this. Um, these were all key towns um, along the Euphrates River Valley where— 
Um, Al Qaeda worked really hard to um, to establish its its caliphate. And the Marines they were hardcore, right? So they they realized we cannot cede this ground to to Al Qaeda because if they let them sit in these towns and cities, that the that it would be nearly impossible for them. They'd be tied down to their bases and only be able to conduct raids, but they would have no influence amongst the Iraqi people. So in late 2000, in the fall of 2005, uh, Marines uh, launched an operation to clear the, and not just clear, but to, to establish footholds in all of these places that I had visited. Um, I got there in just before Thanksgiving, so the operation kicked off. I was actually trying to get there. I was raising money at the time. This is, this is just before Thanksgiving 2005 again. For 2005, listeners. correct, right. yes. Yep. And, you know, so I got in there just as they did the clear, and I got to watch. Um, they actually had the elections during this time period as well. Um, so I got to see the aftermath of this. And one of the things that I witnessed when I was there, um, a lot of people probably won't remember this, but the, the so-called Haditha massacre, and this is when – um, a, a U.S. Marine convoy was a- ambushed in the town of Haditha. Um, it sparked a big firefight. Uh, Marines chased after the the uh, the fighters who who targeted them, went into homes, and women and civilians were killed. And I've seen numbers between fifteen and twenty four civilians were killed. Um, it, the Marines were never charged in this. I was in Haditha less than two weeks after this happened, and I walked that town with the U.S. Marines. I, you know, one of the, I just remember one time there was a report that comes across the radio where they say there's this lime-colored Opal, which is a vehicle that was prevalent in Iraq, that's driving around and it has four armed males and we believe there's a suicide bomb in it. We actually spot the car and instead of opening fire on it, the Marines decide to chase it, the squad that I'm with. And I'm looking at them like they're all insane. If it was up to me, I would open fire on that car and ask questions later, right? Um... But they, you know, car got away and they said, well, we're going to have to let that one go. So what I had saw, and I saw this time after time, well, and I didn't just go in and bed and talk to a journal. I made it sure I made it down to the squad level and walked the streets with these guys. And as a former soldier myself, I wanted to see exactly how it worked, how these, how the Marines and how the soldiers were patrolling, what they were encountering and how Iraqis treated them. Sure, sometimes you got the stink eye from people, but a lot of times I saw people come up and give them information. Um, this, the people in Haditha after the Haditha massacre, so-called massacre, they were not up in arms over this. There was, uh, we did not experience hostility on the street. Um, it was easy to move in the area. You know, I, I, I believe that this well, was who, who were the guys in the Opal car, Bill? Were they, were they anybody or were they, you said, they, I think they said the Marines let them go. So they were obviously, they, they weren't what they were suspected of being. They, they were just described at, at the time as military age males with, um, rifles and and reported to have a suicide bomb. Now, you know, they usually you wouldn't get a report them saying across the radio won't hear these are Al Qaeda like, you know, that won't come across that way. It's not the way the military talks. Um but um if they had a suicide bomb, I mean look, that's that's Al Qaeda's signature there in Iraq. They were the one building suicide bombs. They were the ones doing this. So if if it if that report was accurate, they would have been Al Qaeda. The reason for me telling that story in the context of Haditha is what I always witnessed on embed was soldiers and Marines erring on the side of caution and not um, not being cowboys out there. Don't get me wrong. Well, there's there's instances where this has happened, but it's the exception and not the rule. And the media made Haditha be the rule and not the, the exception. Well, it's interesting. You, know, you mentioned the um, caution that you witnessed in the battlefield. And, you know, just several months before you arrived in Iraq, of course, 
Ayman al-Zawahiri, who was then Osama bin Laden's right-hand man in the number two in al-Qaeda, was warning Abu Musab al-Zarqawi, who was leading al-Qaeda in Iraq at the time, that he wasn't being cautious enough. Um, you know, of course, there's this infamous letter that Zawahiri sent to Zarqawi in July of 2005, I think it was, the summer of 2005, in which he, um, you know, dresses down Zarqawi basically for his indiscriminate slaughter of Shiite civilians and others. You know, basically these are actions that Zawahiri thought and al-Qaeda senior leadership thought could actually, um, you know, basically uh, lead to a loss of popular support for their jihad in Iraq. And it's interesting, you know, that that letter got a lot of play, but I always come back to the fact that there are parts of that letter that, that have not gotten a lot of play, including that Zawahiri set out his, and al-Qaeda's, incremental goals, as he called them. That's his words for the jihad in Iraq. And the ultimate goal, according to Zawahiri, was to establish an Islamic authority or emirate and then develop and support it until it achieves the level of a caliphate, uh, governing over as much territory as Zarqawi's men could conquer. Now, that, those are his words, establish an Islamic authority or emirate, which would ultimately achieve, quote-unquote, the level of a caliphate. And I always come back to this because, you know, when ISIS emerged in 2014 and declared its caliphate, a lot of people acted like that was something brand new or came out of nowhere or, you know, that wasn't that wasn't something Al-Qaeda was all about or interested in. And yet we have a whole you know, just sort of string of correspondence back and forth between Al-Qaeda leadership in Iraq, public statements by Al-Qaeda leadership saying this is what they're interested in all the time. All the time. And basically what Zawahiri and others were worried about with Zarqawi's actions was he was going to alienate the popular support needed to build the Islamic Emirate, to make an Emirate that was stable. And Zawahiri actually pointed to the Taliban's Islamic Emirate in Afghanistan, which was toppled in 2001. And Zawahiri said, look, the people of Afghanistan didn't rally to the Taliban side in 2001. We want to make sure that doesn't happen in Iraq when uh, the U.S. and its allies try and destroy inevitably any um, Islamic State they build there. And of course, this, this sort of tension, there's always been this tension there uh, between the two, uh, you know, between the Al-Qaeda senior leadership vision of what they want their jihad to look like and what the jihadists in Iraq were doing. You know, Al-Qaeda, of course, uh, pursues a more popular revolutionary model over the long run, whereas ISIS had sort of a top-down authoritarianism. You know, and, and Bill, I remember this too, you know, you were talking about you were there just before Thanksgiving in 2005, you know, one of the things that um, came out too over time was this letter from one of bin Laden's lieutenants, Atiyah Abdelrahman. Uh, he sends his, he sends a letter to Zarqawi in late 2005, and in that letter, he basically is it's just filled with condescension for the Jordanians. Zarqawi is of course a Jordanian, and it's filled with condescension for him. And he even he even suggested Zarqawi consider stepping down. I mean, that's sort of amazing to see that sort of thing in action while you're. You're talking about being there on the ground in Iraq with Marines who are trying to fight, uh, stop these suicide bombers from killing mainly Iraqis, but others as well. You could see that Al-Qaeda senior leadership that early on in 2005 knew that there were major problems here. Yeah, and Tom, you know, Al-Qaeda Central was right to be concerned about Zarqawi's heavy-handedness in Iraq. One of the, um, my very, I believe it was either the first or second night, first or second night of my embed out there, um... We, uh, you know, I was waking up and we went in the middle of the night. We walk about two miles in the town. We're on Al Qaim. This is a town right on the border with Syria. I mean, you could literally look across the border and see Syria. We're ushered uh, a, a squad of Marines, about eight, uh, eight to twelve Marines, and I were we hike about two miles to this this home, and we're I'm sitting there going, "What the hell is happening here?" We get in there, we take our boots off, and then we're with the, this group of tribal leaders. 
And they're telling us, um, I hate to take my boots off, by the way, because if something went bad, I'd got to get my boots off and run. But um, <laughs> the, the, the tribal leaders are telling us, you know, about Al-Qaeda, how heavy-handed they're being, how they don't want to be part of this, how they need to get, get rid of them, how they're willing to fight, fight against Al-Qaeda. This was the, the very beginning of the awakening. And my understanding, it could have been one of the first meetings with um, tribal with Iraqi tribal leaders in order to um, to establish this type of relationship. I was super, like usually this type of mission would be carried out with special forces. I was shocked that the Marines were tasked with this mission. So it was just a lieutenant and like I said, a handful of Marines and I just marching out into the middle of nowhere to go talk to them. And it's very very dangerous for these tribal leaders to even meet us. That's why it had to be done at two o'clock in the morning. Why we had to sneak around the city of Alkaim or the t- really a town of Alkaim in order to do this. And and so this is what Zawahiri and Rahman and others feared about Zarqawi's tactics. So do you, uh, just as a side note, do you know what happened to that tribal leader over time that you met with? I, I don't know what happened to the tribal leader. I don't know. I don't know whether he was killed or survived. I do know that that tribe remained a steadfast ally of the U S up until the U S withdraw. They formed something called the, um, uh, Anbar Tigers, and it was like some type of border patrol unit. Um, but I not individually no, but historically, a lot of the the tribal leaders who were very public about these this were were targeted, and some were killed by Al Qaeda in Iraq. And just to return to your point, you know, the locals, whether that be Iraqis or Syrians or Afghans, they're often on the front line against the jihadis. Uh, you know, and this is another case in point of that. So you know. Dealing with all these tensions, of course, Al-Qaeda and Al-Qaeda in Iraq are familiar and well aware that they're having problems building support for their cause, although they do have some. Uh, But in 2006, we're going to now go from 2005 when Bill first goes to Iraq. We're now going to go forward to 2006. And just, uh, you know, basically a month and a half to two months after you're in Iraq, Bill, of course, Al-Qaeda in Iraq forms the Mujahideen Shura Council. This is in January of 2006. And they merged with several other groups to, to, under the Mujahideen Shura Council's banner. And the purpose of this was to form this political front that would uh, build political legitimacy for the jihadist project and ultimately put an Iraqi face on the insurgency. They knew that the U.S. and its allies at this time were scrutinizing their foreign leadership. Of course, you know, Zarqawi was a foreigner. Some of the guys underneath him were foreigners. Ultimately, however, Zarqawi is killed in June 2006. And he's immediately replaced by a guy known as Abu Hamza al-Muhajir, uh, who's an Egyptian who had served under Ayman al-Zawahiri and the Egyptian Islamic Jihad. I always think when you go back to the history of this, Abu Hamza's role is probably the least reported or understood in terms of developing what becomes known as the Islamic State. Because it's on his watch in October 2006 that the Mujahideen Shura Council is relaunched as the Islamic State of Iraq. And they name this murky figure, uh, Abu Omar al-Baghdadi, as its leader. And Abu Omar was very, uh, you know, there's not a lot known about him. Of course, there are biographies that come out years later that say that he was a real guy the whole time. The U.S. claimed at the time that he didn't even really exist, that he was just some sort of stand-in the jihadis needed to put an Iraqi face on their cause. But in any event, Abu Hamza swears his allegiance to Abu Omar. And in his oath to uh, Abu Hamza's oath to Abu Omar, he says that um, basically he's recognizing that Baghdadi's supposed ancestry going all the way back to the Prophet Muhammad's Quraysh tribe. Now, why is this interesting? Well, 
ISIS has continued with that tradition all the way through right now in 2020. So we're talking about an event that occurred all the way back in October and November of 2006, where they declare this leader of the Islamic State of Iraq, this murky figure, Abu Omar al-Baghdadi. They say he's descended from the same tribe as the Prophet Muhammad. They're still claiming that today, right, Bill? I mean, all the way back into now 2019, 2020, when we have Abu Ibrahim is the new leader of ISIS, and he claims to have been descended from the tribe as well. From Yeah, that, that's correct. It's, it's the cornerstone to their claim to power um, for the caliphate. Right, and I don't see any information warfare or just general information reporting on the U.S. side or ally side to draw this into question to say, you know, this is kind of specious. Um, the current emir of ISIS, uh, there's some question about whether or not he could really even be descended from uh, the, the Prophet's tribe, although I, I, I think there's multiple scenarios in which he could be. But, you know, the U.S. government says he's an Iraqi of Turkmen heritage. Um, certainly it's, it's, uh, dubious, but, um, they certainly ISIS hasn't proven it, but the, the Americans and our allies haven't really drawn it into question either. Not in a, not in a continue, not in sort of a integral sort of continuous way that, that sort of questions them on a communications basis. Um, in any event, the timing of the, um, announcement of the Islamic State of Iraq in late 2006, October 2006, it may have caught... Um, Al-Qaeda senior leadership by, by surprise. Certainly, Ayman al-Zawahiri years later says that, that, that it did, that this is something that, they, that the jihadis in Iraq were forced to do for political circumstances. But I've also always thought it was interesting, Bill. You know, I, w- I was recently going back through all the messages on Iraq, and on the fifth anniversary of 9-11 in September 2006, Ayman al-Zawahiri, so this is just, you know, one month before the Islamic State of Iraq is announced, Ayman al-Zawahiri gives a lengthy interview in which he explains that the quote-unquote general concept uh, that he's talking about now for the jihadis, their quote-unquote general concept was to establish, quote, an Islamic emirate in both Iraq and Afghanistan. And then he said that these emirates would then serve as, quote-unquote, the launching pad for the defense of Islam and Muslims and a step toward the revival of the caliphate. So again, here's al-Qaeda senior leadership saying just before the Islamic State of Iraq is declared in Iraq that what al-Qaeda is all about, what they're trying to do is build an emirate in Iraq and build an emirate, restore basically the Taliban's emirate in Afghanistan, and then they want to use both of these to revive the caliphate. That's sort of the working model at the time. Right, Bill? Yeah, that's correct. I mean, again, this gets lost. I mean, the Islamic State was really nothing new under the sun. It just wrapped it real nice and, and in a very effective military operation. Yeah, they built on these this long-standing idea. When, when the Islamic State emerges in 2014, they're building on these years of al-Qaeda saying this and the jihadis in Iraq saying this, that the caliphate's coming, that we're fighting for a caliphate. And this is lost in sort of a lot of the discussion. And it's interesting, too, because, you know, as al-Qaeda senior leadership is defending the Islamic State of Iraq publicly in both private and public correspondence, we're going to talk a little bit about that. So then you return to Iraq just um, within two months of them declaring the Islamic State of Iraq. You go to Fallujah, right, Bill, in late 2006? Right, yeah. So in in Fallujah, it was December 2006. This is probably the darkest time in Iraq. This is the time when— there was significant pressure for President Bush to, to withdraw from Iraq. Uh, Al-Qaeda in Iraq, which was now the Islamic State in Iraq, it controlled a significant amount of territory in the country. In, uh, in Nineveh province up north, where, where um, uh, Mosul— Which is where Mosul is, right, yeah. Yeah, in uh, Salah Hadin, which is just south of it, in Anbar province, in— in and around Baghdad, in Diyala province, and on on the uh, in the east, which borders Iran, they con- they controlled large areas of Iraq by this point. The Iraqi military was incapable of defending large areas. It, it was hunkered down on its bases. It was ill developed. They were pushed out too fast, and they were butchered. 
by by the um, by Al Qaeda in Iraq. So in Fallujah, I, I was there one year after the Battle of the Fallujah. Okay, just a, just a little over one year. At that point in time, um, uh, that was actually the second Battle of Fallujah. The the city was walled off. Access was restricted. There was sort of zones set up in the city. So they were tr- trying real hard to get. Um, you know, you had that photo ID to move in and out of the city. There were the U.S. military, Iraqi police, Iraqi army were working really hard to try and secure Fallujah, but it was a tough task. Um, remember, I mentioned that the mili- the in Anbar, the military was actually pr- practicing counter Fallujah, counter Fallujah, right? The <laughs> counterinsurgency. Um, but the um, I think the whole point of counterinsurgency is to not be counter Fallujah. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Um, it wasn't being practiced nationwide. So whatever was working in Anbar can easily be degraded from the outside. It's almost like think of it like Afghanistan and the, the border and having Pakistan uh, being a sanctuary for the Taliban. It's that similar. While things in Anbar, though, things were going right. It was constantly disturbed by what was happening in the provinces surrounding Anbar province. So um, I was embedded with the police um, transition team. So what this was was a group of Marines. Um, pretty much like uh, 10 to 20 Marines who were embedded with, an, with the Iraqi city police. Um, we were at the provincial compound. The police were uh, basically under siege. We took mortars there almost daily. Um, there'd be drive-by shootings at the, at the provincial center where we were stationed. Um, outside of the, the, the police had to hide their faces. Um, if anyone got wind who the police were, they would, they would target them or target their families. It was, you know, Fallujah was under nominal uh, control of the Iraqi government and, and the U.S. military. Um, while I was there, I was also embedded with the with regular Army unit, um, the military transition teams and regular U.S. Army, or mar- actually U.S. Marine units in Fallujah. Um, it was surreal, I, I got to tell you. I mean, I didn't witness the first or second battle of Fallujah, but what I witnessed while I was in Fallujah in December 2006, it was very dark, it was very clear. Um, that the the police, the army, and the U.S. military had a very thin grasp on security. But again, what you did see is that Iraqis were willing to take that risk. Um, the they Al Qaeda was targeting their families, was targeting them personally, um, attempting to enforce Sharia. Um, you know, and one interesting thing I, I noted when I was there, there were some Iraqi units um, when I was out in patrol um, with as a, with the military transition teams. So you would be with like it would be like me, two Marines, and maybe a squad or two of, of Iraqi soldiers. So you think about that; it's a little scary, right? But I a lot a lot of these army units were Shia, um, were from you know. So you to over you know there's the Shia sect in 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 uh, Islam and the Sunni sect, and there's there's problems between. Uh, I'm not going to go all into the detail there, but there's a lot of distrust. Anbar is a primarily Sunni area, um, and of course, and Shia Bill- military. And Bill, of course, Al Qaeda in Iraq, and then the Islamic State of Iraq and ISIS—they have a fetish for Shiite blood. They, yeah, they, absolutely, they love, them they being love Sunni Shiites. themselves, yeah. and they—they right. they hate they hate the Shia. And part of Zarqawi's problem was going after the Shia. So, I would see people come up to the um, the Shia Iraqi military officers and provide intelligence, and. If the U.S. military didn't want to do the targeting, these guys would go out and do it on their own. So they were sort of, they, you know, um, maybe a little extrajudicial killing in a dirty war in a place like Fallujah. Sometimes a little of that is necessary to make things happen. Um, and, you know, one one interesting thing, you know, that, that always, always in the back of my mind, remember that Fallujah was the center of, of the rise of al-Qaeda. 
And um, Abu Hamza Mujer, uh, Zarqawi's successor, um, he, he supposedly uh, served as a lieutenant to Zarqawi in Fallujah at one point. This would, would have been in the early days when the, in the, the uprising in Fallujah when al-Qaeda was enforcing Sharia and, and they kicked out the Iraqi army and the U.S. military. So this was, Fallujah was a very well-known turf for, for uh, Mujer and, and um, al-Qaeda in Iraq in general. All right, so we're going to take a break there. That brings you up through 2006. When we come back, we're going to talk about the Islamic State of Iraq and how it evolved into ISIS from 2007 onward. Hey, everyone. Thanks for being a listener of Generation Jihad. We're really excited to be able to bring this show to our dedicated audience. Our research and products like these are made possible because of your donations. We want to do more of this and bring you more and more new products. So if you like what you hear, or if the research on our website has been helpful, consider donating to support our work today. Just head on over to longwarjournal.org and click the donate button in the top right. We'd really appreciate your support. With that out of the way, let's get back into the episode. Okay, so Bill, you're in Fallujah in late 2006. Now we're going to move forward to 2007. You're in Iraq again in 2007, covering the surge of American forces. Uh, where were you in Iraq during that time, and what did you see? Yeah, so I actually was in Iraq in t- at two different times in 2007. In, in January 2007, I was embedded with a military transition team in Habaniya. This was uh, prior t- to the surge actually kicking off. Uh, and that was quite interesting. This was in a, an area that was along the Euphrates River Valley that was an al-Qaeda stronghold. And what I witnessed there was these awakening groups going after al-Qaeda in Iraq, right? They had a target list. And when I was there, I think I, and I, I may get these numbers wrong, but they, they pulled off like number seven, number 15, and number 19 off of their 20 most wanted list. So it was a pretty, pretty interesting to see that it was a short embed with the, um, with a Marine unit there. And then in September 2007, when the surge was raging, uh, I guess the surge began in the, in the, in the spring of that year, I was in bed. So Bill, in- Bill, Bill, tell us again what the surge is. It's probably, this is so long ago now, people probably even forgotten exactly what went down. I mean, most people know. Will remember, yeah, no, Tom, it's, it's 13 years ago, right? I mean, it's hard to believe that, um, that it was that long ago. It almost, it feels like another lifetime or at least another professional lifetime ago. So, the surge, right? At this point in time, as I explained earlier, Al-Qaeda in Iraq or the Islamic State in Iraq controlled significant territory throughout um, multiple provinces in Iraq. Um, they were dug into these areas. The Iraqi security forces were getting beaten down every time they tried to go in and dislodge them. Al-Qaeda in Iraq was launching suicide attacks, major suicide attacks, like take, doing things like taking oil tankers and detonating them in, in Sadr City, a Shia area in Baghdad, and killing 100 people at a time. Um, you had the Shia death squads responding by killing, butchering Sunnis in Baghdad. So this, I, at this point, Iraq was in almost full civil war mode with a terrorist group controlling significant territory in the country. So the surge was designed to um, to basically beat down al-Qaeda's military capabilities, take down, um, remove it from control of territories, get the U.S. military and Iraqi forces um, into those areas, and then provide governance in these areas. Um, it was 
it was done in stages. So they would work from area to area, usually province to province. So the first priority was securing Baghdad, and they branched out from there. And then they moved on into the surrounding provinces. Anbar was actually a, an easy one to do. Um, most of Anbar was actually pretty secured by the time the surge um, happened. And then they moved into Salahuddin and Diyala, which was a very bloody fight, went underreported. And then the last area was Nineveh province and Mosul itself. So, um, yeah, in, in, 2007, in 2000, September 2007, actually, that's when we launched the actual Long War Journal as well. I remember programming the website as, as I'm walking out the door to get that up so we can, we can be the Long War Journal while in Iraq. And, um, yeah, there I was primarily in Baghdad, some areas south of Baghdad, including that area that's known as the Triangle of Death. And also spent a short amount of time with a, the Georgian army in Wasit province, um, and they were um, providing security against the, the Shia terror groups that were operating in, in, in that area. That's a whole nother story for a whole nother episode, Tom. So while this is all going on, while you're embedded there in Iraq again in 2007 a couple of times, of course, um, Al-Qaeda is weighing in about what's going on in Iraq as it did throughout this whole period. And they're, interestingly enough, you know, you have a lot of people who claim that the formation of the Islamic State of Iraq in 2006 was sort of the end of Al-Qaeda's presence in Iraq. ISIS itself made this claim repeatedly when Al-Qaeda's senior leadership disowned it in 2014. You know, it was the spokesman of ISIS and its predecessor organizations, Abu Muhammad al-Anani, a fire breather, really, for the organization. You know, he, he tried to, to claim that this was the case, although I think his testimony was deeply conflicted on this point and contradictory. I think most of what he said actually hurt his case. That's a, a future episode but of uh, this podcast. We'll get into all that. But in any, but any event, um, throughout 2007, uh, months after the Islamic State of Iraq was formed, you know, interestingly enough, Al-Qaeda leadership continued to defend the Islamic State of Iraq, both publicly and in private. And we have collected uh, a number of speeches and, and private correspondence that was found in Osama bin Laden's Abadabad compound and other pieces of evidence to show us what to show what they were thinking. Um, you know, and again, you know, it was a July 2007 speech where Ayman al-Zawahiri uh, weighed in on this and described the Islamic State of Iraq as a big leap on the road of jihadi action in Iraq. And he defended Abu Hamza al-Muhajir, who was then, you know, basically the head of al-Qaeda in Iraq and had sworn his allegiance to this murky figure named, known as Abu Omar al-Baghdadi. And uh, Sawahiri says that, that Abu Hamza and his comrades had built this Islamic state, which was one step closer to the outskirts of Jerusalem and the establishment of the caliphate. So again, you have al-Qaeda weighing in saying, basically, out of Iraq, we're going to build the caliphate is coming. You know, that's not just something they were saying publicly. You know, Bill and I, for years, we fought to get the Bin Laden files released. This is the massive tranche of documents that were recovered in Bin Laden's Abadabad compound when he was killed in May 2011. We're going to have a couple of different episodes on that in the future. Bill, I know we're working on that. Uh, I have some good ideas on that. Well, what's interesting is some of these letters that have been released show that al-Qaeda was very concerned about the Islamic State of Iraq's jihadi critics, including bigwig, you know, heavyweight ideologues like Dr. Hamid al-Ali. Well, Dr. Hamid, who was in Kuwait, is a Kuwaiti, he's a U.S. designated terrorist. He's somebody who the U.S. government has accused of financing al-Qaeda in Iraq. But Ali didn't back the Islamic State of Iraq. Dr. Hamid actually was a very loud critic of it and actually called for its dissolution. And so it was in August 2007, in one of the letters that we've uh, analyzed that's been released, uh, bin Laden actually says to Zawahiri, he's instructing Zawahiri, he says, look, you know, basically the, the, the most important thing we need to do right now is remove the ambiguity around the subject of the Islamic State of Iraq. Those are bin Laden's words. He wanted to remove the ambiguity. 
And what he wanted Zawahiri to do was make the, make basically Islamic State of Iraq the centerpiece of his public testimony. And he told Zawahiri that he wanted, and this is a quote now, that he wanted Zawahiri to make this, the quote-unquote, main access for your work plan in the coming stage should be the continued support of the truthful Mujahideen in Iraq, headed by our brothers in the Islamic State of Iraq, and defending them should be the core issue and should take the lion's share and the top priority in your speeches and statements. Um, you know, this is all curious, right, Bill? If the Islamic State of Iraq had truly broken off from al-Qaeda senior leadership and betrayed bin Laden and Abu Omar al-Baghdadi was the sort of usurper of authority, as it was later claimed, then why the heck was bin Laden and Zawahiri defending him, right? And in fact, we see in all these statements, they defend Abu Omar al-Baghdadi and Abu Hamza and say that they're the righteous leaders of the jihad. Quite, quite the opposite of what we see later with Abu Baker al-Baghdadi, right? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, you know, what's confused is in, in all of this is, yes, there was criticism from Al-Qaeda Central on the Iraq project and the declaration of the Islamic State of Iraq and, and how Zaw Zarqawi was going about, you know, uh, declaring Sharia and targeting um, the, the Shia. But that didn't mean they didn't back the project, that it didn't mean it wasn't a core goal of theirs. There was criticism of how Zarqawi operated but that didn't mean they didn't support the Islamic State of Iraq. They absolutely did. All of the evidence points to this, and anything that says otherwise is it's just it's based on feeling and not fact. You know, well, it's interesting too. You know, we were covering all of the Islamic State of Iraq videos at the time they would come out. We'd watch them, and they were a lot of them were framed in an Al Qaeda context, where they have Al Qaeda leaders at the front end or the back end, or sort of interspersed throughout. I mean, there, there was a lot of Al-Qaeda commentary, you know, citing Osama bin Laden, citing Ayman al-Zawahiri and others. So it wasn't like the Islamic State of Iraq was saying, hey, we're out of the Al-Qaeda fold now and forget you. We're going to, you know, we're not going to have anything to do with you. You know, I can cite, you know, I don't know, a lot of videos and statements that came out from the Islamic State of Iraq that certainly looked like they were still referencing it from an Al-Qaeda point of view. Yeah, absolutely. It, it, you know, I, I couldn't... This is just one of those issues. I know, I know Tom, <laughs> I constantly, when we discuss this, I'm like, I just don't understand the debate over this. To well, me, the a debate lot of it, is a lot over. Of it's framed, a lot of it's framed in the post-2014 world. Where yes. people, part of what I've, I've found out through doing this for years is that ISIS generated a lot better analysis than Al-Qaeda did because ISIS didn't really hide the extent of what it was doing to the extent that Al-Qaeda did. And ISIS was very in your face. But there were a lot of these bad sort of paradigms under understanding Al-Qaeda that we've sort of fought through the years. And this is one of them, that basically there was this big effort to, this big effort to say um, that Al-Qaeda didn't really have anything to do with the jihad in Iraq and that it wasn't really, you know, the Islamic State of Iraq wasn't really part of the Al-Qaeda project. And I got to tell you, there's just so much evidence that cuts against that, including Al-Qaeda senior leadership's own words, that it's very tough to, to, to take that at face value, you know. Um, so I understand where you're coming from and why that, that struggle. But you know what? We'll make that another one. I keep putting these little <laughs> notes. We'll make that a future episode. We'll talk about Al-Qaeda and the relations with ISIS and its predecessors. We'll make that a whole episode in the future, uh, just going through all the evidence, and, and, and there's quite a bit of it. Yeah, with Let's me, Tom, you may as well be arguing that the grass is not green and the sky is not blue. I just I, – I, we track this from the very beginning. We were familiar with all of the statements and all the communiques. It's it's a slam dunk case, and it's it's almost insulting to have to to defend it. Well, look, I mean, not to be uh, uh, off key here for a second, but there's a lot of crappy analysis out there. <laughs> yeah, that there know? is. So you know, this is the way it is. Anyway, uh, we'll we'll get into this more. Not that there weren't big problems in Iraq for Al Qaeda. Of course, there absolutely were. But, were. Uh, but uh, you know, the idea that it was the Islamic State of Iraq was totally out of the Al Qaeda fold just doesn't hold water for us. In any event, so that brings us up. Let's get back to 2008 now. So, Bill, you're in Iraq again. 
uh, you know, I'm sure your wife was loving this at this point. Yeah, she's, um, she's real happy about this. Yeah. Yeah. And this time you're embedded in Mosul, which is the future seat of the ISIS caliphate. I mean, this is where Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi accepts his role as Caliph Ibrahim uh, during a, a speech at the Great Mosque of Al-Nuri in 2014. I mean, Mosul is, is it from ISIS's perspective. This is the big this is the big deal for them in, in Iraq. Can you talk about your time there and what you saw there? Sort of this early on. So this is 2008 now. Six years later, this is the site of Baghdadi's most, uh, you know, sort of glorious ascension to power as he saw it and you're there six weeks six years earlier yeah as, as i noted earlier right the 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 surge kind of went in stages and by 2008 the the real fight against al-qaeda which um it was beaten back again in baghdad and in diyala and salahuddin most of the group fell but either went underground um and it went to a cellular sort of guerrilla warfare nature or it fled to to uh, Mosul uh, and Nineveh province, right? So this was where the real fight was. And, you know, because I'm a genius, this is where I decide to go. Um, and Or just or just lucky from a, a you know, story. I'm saying that in the, in the sense <laughs> of, of if you want to catch a bullet or an IED, you went to Mosul in 2008. Um, yeah. So, yeah, it, there I was embedded with the U.S. military uh Transition teams, again, those are the ones they embed themselves with the Iraqi military. Uh, this was an army unit that um, mentored a battalion of Iraqi troops in, in uh, actually it was with two different uh, MITs, one in eastern and one in western uh, Mosul. So um, it was a battleground. It was like Fallujah in, um, in 2006. There were IEDs and suicide bombs going off or shootings almost every other day. Um, the military was hunting Al-Qaeda in Iraq cells there. They were rounding up Saudis, Syrians, Libyans, Moroccans, you name it. They were going, they even were publishing, uh, charts or charts of these groups. I remember at the time with pictures of them, it was, um, it was a lot of good hard work, uh, by the U S military and the Iraqi military up there. They had an Iraqi division, two of the, two of the brigades in the div- divisions about, I guess the Iraqi divisions probably around, Eight ten thousand, and so a brigade would be about two thousand each. Um, two of those were actually Kurdish um, Peshmerga, who were reflagged as Iraqi army. Um, they they knew the city real well, and the other two were um, they were Iraqi units from the outside. One of them was a Shia, and one was a predominantly Sunni unit. Um, so. You know, so you're in, there. You're there in March two thousand eight. I think that was that's two. correct. March two thousand eight, and. Um, you know, so I'll, I'll tell one story. I mean, and this is, it's probably one of the, the ones that still makes the hair on the back of my neck uh, raise. So in um, the, one of the, one day we go to this place called Combat Outpost Inman. It was a Iraqi army battalion stationed in, I believe it was Eastern um, Mosul at this time. And the Iraqi milica- military commander there, the colonel there, he was, he was a mess. And the Iraqi general that I was with they were going to relieve him of command. So they go up, we go up there and we pull in. And I immediately note to them with a lieutenant colonel um, that I'm with, I said, why are we driving straight on the base? Now, if you don't, if you haven't served in the military and served overseas, you might not understand what I'm saying, but typically you don't want to pull right up onto a military base in a war zone. Um, You want like a serpentine, you want to go around obstacles to slow your path. Because I'm like, wow, a suicide bomber can drive right up onto this place. And he looks at me and, and he says, that's why we're driving up there to relieve him. Now, they go and relieve the colonel, but he, they don't actually relieve him of command. They say, you got to be out of here in a couple of days. We leave. 
Two days later, I remember in the morning, I hear we hear a massive explosion. I'm probably about a mile away from this base. I'm on the, the major FOB, the major um, forward operating base at the airport in Mosul at this time. It shook the trailer that I'm in. I get, come out and I see a mushroom cloud. And, you know, oh shit, right? It, it's uh, what happened here. I get with the, the mitts who were around the corner, the military transition team guys. We put our gear on, roll up. It's at Combat Outpost Inman. Al-Qaeda suicide bomber packed a dump truck and armored it. They welded plates in spots. That uh, the, the, ID, um, the counter-IED team that was at the scene, they said that at least 10,000 pounds of explosives. So at that point in time, the largest suicide bomb um, detonated in Iraq. It looked like, so the, the guy runs through the gate. They had an ambulance block it. The dump truck goes through it. Pulls in the middle of three buildings and detonates. There's a crater that's about 20 feet deep and 30 feet wide. It looked like Oklahoma City times three. The facades of all these buildings are ripped off. Um, you could see into the rooms. You see when by the time we get out there, they're pulling bodies of the Iraqi soldiers out. And um, it was horrific. And it, it, it was very sad. You see the Iraqi soldiers uh, crying. So I'm embedded with the actually at the division level with this Iraqi unit, Iraqi army unit and the the military transition team. And I turn to the general and I say to him, because this is, you know, it's very sensitive, right? I don't want to be standing there like some schmo, you know, combat reporter taking pictures of dead soldiers. I mean, as a former soldier myself, you have to respect this, right? So I said, sir, I, I don't think I can do this. And his response to me was show them, um, show the world what the uh what our soldiers fight and die and what um die and die fighting al-qaeda show out show the how horrible al-qaeda is the, you know we're here to do our job you do your job and i to me it was probably i, I real i'm not saying and i'm not giving it the right but it, to me it was one of the more poignant things i had heard from a military commander i mean he's what he there was 12 of his soldiers killed um and about uh, i believe 20 or 30 wounded i'm surprised that the body count was so low on this attack and by the way, we believe that that colonel who was being relieved just basically gave the keys to the kingdom to to an Al Qaeda fighter to come in and detonate and, and conduct that attack. So it was that was probably one of the more jarring things. That was actually the um, one of the last days. I believe it was the last day of the embed. It was on Easter um, uh, morning that that attack took place, and uh, it was it was very difficult to leave that unit at that point in time. And and but it did it, to me. It showed. The, the Iraqis, they continued to fight. While I was in Mosul, there was a, they, they um, kidnapped the, the Chaldean cardinal, basically the, 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 uh, a Christian cardinal. The Iraqi military units were operating night and day trying to get this. These guys, I mean, some of these, a lot of cases, look, they're not Americans. They're not going to, you know, run, you know, 24-7. In this case, they knew the importance. They, they, eventually they found him dead, but they, there were some committed units in, in there. So the, the suicide bomber who blew himself up at the combat outpost there, I think you said it was on the eastern side of Mosul. Later, later it comes out that it's actually a former Guantanamo detainee from Kuwait uh, known as Abdullah Saleh al-Ajmi. Um, and Al-Qaeda in Iraq actually then uses your photos that you took, that the Iraqis said you should, you should take there at, at the combat outpost, in their propaganda videos in June 2008, sort of celebrating the sack by al-Ajmi. Why don't you talk a little bit about the the photos and how they were used in the propaganda video? That that could not have sat well with you, of course. Yeah, it's one of the it's one of the multiple moments in your career where you, that happens and you want to take a shower. You know, 
Um, and she, no, no amount of showers can wash off that stink. It's, it's, you know, but you have to expect it, right? I was the only reporter on the scene, um, of this. Uh, it also, Tommy, we know they follow us. So you get that creep as well. Um, your, your information has been in several Al Qaeda and Islamic state and mine as well. And Taliban propaganda, they use our information. Yeah. And just, and just to be clear, we do not like you. Uh, so, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and we so don't like you using our stuff. <laughs> no, right. Right. And, and I, I always find it creepy when anytime we're in one of these guys publications. So, but yeah, to, totally, yeah, but, you know, I, it, it's always, it's always disturbing, but Alajmi, you know, it's interesting because I remember, I think this is one of those stories where it's one of the first times you and I were talking about who a guy was because I was building this huge database of Guantanamo detainees at the time, uh, both current and former, based on leaked and declassified information. And we went through Alajmi's files, and yes. I remember seeing that the U.S. authorities, initially anyway, he admitted that he had actually fought for the Taliban in the front lines in Bagram for months in 2001, um, you know, and then basically he tries to walk that back at one point in one of his hearings at Guantanamo, but the U.S. authorities don't believe him. They basically concluded that he deserted the Kuwaiti army to wage jihad in Afghanistan, which is obviously an, it's a sign of ideological commitment, right, right Bill? And then, you know, the Quays re, uh, fought to repatriate their citizens, including Ajmi, and he's, retur- he's returned to his home country in November 2005, and there you are just a few days after he blows himself up in 2008. We know that the recidivism rate is high. Um, these guys... They're well, not. I think I think I think it's I think the the bottom line for me is that I you can make a lot of different arguments. I don't want to get into Guantanamo now sure. detention policy because that's a whole mess. No, you know, so I don't want to get into any of that. But but the bottom line is, is that you know a guy like Al Ajmi with the the Kuwaitis. I mean they were they were pressuring to to let him out and then they didn't keep tabs on him and they didn't stop him from going into Iraq and doing this. And that's that's my mainly my main point with it is you can't have it both ways. You can't say hey you got to free our citizens. And then don't take responsibility for making sure these guys aren't committed fighters. And and the, th- the thing about his his dossier is, I mean, if you're going to desert the Kuwaiti military and go off to wage jihad in Afghanistan, that shows a level of com- commitment that's probably not. Uh, you got to make sure you're doing something to to make sure that that is sort of mitigated going forward. And clearly, they didn't. Right? Yeah, and and it gets back to a running theme that we have with the, a lot of this is these guys just don't retire. You know, Ajmi. He, uh, he punched his ticket, and uh, he decided to conduct a suicide attack in Iraq. When we release Taliban leaders, they come back and uh, they, you know, join the negotiating team or get back in to be a military commander or join, you know. So it, they're, fight, they're, they're fighting on timelines that are so far different from ours, and it's, it's a, you know, it's a very disturbing aspect of this. Ajmi's attack, you know, it's it's you know it's hard to say. Would Al Qaeda in Iraq have been able to recruit someone else to conduct these attacks? The answer is probably yes. But the fact is, is that this guy should not have carried out that attack. Yeah, and he, he jumped to the head of the line to he do did. on that yep. day to do it. So, yeah, that he did. Know, he there, wanted there were, to do there were, this. There were hundreds and hundreds of others who did it as well. And of course, ISIS became the most prolific martyrdom machine on the planet at one point. But let's go through this now. So. Now, you leave Iraq in 2008. Of course, from 2008 to 2010, the U.S. continues to hunt down Islamic State of Iraq leaders. In April 2010, they get both Abu Umar al-Baghdadi and Abu Hamza al-Muhajir. Um, the U.S. military at the time, I remember covering this, they were saying that you know this was a sign of you know that they're really weakened and they're probably on the path to defeat, so to speak. We hear that over and over again. Um, but then in 2011, President Obama, uh, under his watch, you know, and certainly it's something he campaigned on, all American forces were withdrawn from the country. 
And in our view, I know, Bill, we've been covering this for so long. Our view is that withdrawal combined with the war in Syria, combined with the sectarian politics in Iraq, which are entirely poisonous, they sort of created an opening for the Islamic State of Iraq not only to survive, but even to mushroom and eventually become the so-called caliphate. Um, and I remember you and I were talking about this in 2011, 2012. A lot of people in Washington and elsewhere were celebrating the fact the U.S. wasn't in Iraq anymore, where, you know, we just watched the jihadis. That's what we do. And we didn't think the jihadis were finished at the time. I remember we co-wrote a piece in 2012 called Strategic Retreat. The main gist of it was there were basically plenty of warring sides coming out of Iraq that uh, this thing was percolating once again and that, uh, you know, basically that they were far from defeated. Now, I don't think we ever saw the foresaw the entire rise of ISIS as a lot that we could not have foreseen. We don't have crystal balls here. But, you know, based, Bill, on what you saw during your embeds in Iraq, it wasn't hard to envision that the Islamic State of Iraq could rebound pretty quickly in 2007 onward, right? Yeah, absolutely, Tom. Um, you know, when I was in Mosul, I realized that there was still a very long fight ahead, Um we achieved a lot of tactical successes in Mosul and Anbar and Saladin and Baghdad and other places. But it was very clear to me that the 2011 withdrawal was, was premature, um, you know, as we argued at the time. You know, people, we lost in, entire intelligence networks in Iraq. The, the awakenings that we created, and it wasn't just in Anbar. These happened throughout Iraq. We lost contact with these networks. These were the networks that could have warned us about the coming, the rise of the Islamic State. Um, you know, during my time in Iraq, I saw how we effectively hunted down one one terrorist leader after another, but they always seemed to have a replacement. And that's because they were operating in battlefields beyond Iraq and, and pulling them in. Syria, even before the Syrian civil war, Syria served as a sort of Pakistan for for al-Qaeda in Iraq. We even conducted a raid, a cross-border raid, I believe it was in, what, 2008? Well, that, the, the U.S. did, not you and me, Bill, right? Yeah, yes, that would not be me. <laughs> the, that would be the U.S. military. I went after a guy named Abu Gadea, who um, who was running an al-Qaeda network that was feeding the, you know this, this insurgency. Um, you know, look, this told me they had a, a, a developed a deep bench of talent um, and that they, they can keep this insurgency going indefinitely, particularly they could keep this going indefinitely without U.S. support. The Iraqi military, the Iraqi police, they were getting better, but they lacked a lot of what was needed to take this fight. The intelligence gathering and reconnaissance and, and combat support and medical and all the things you need to keep a military in the field and hunting for for jihadists they didn't they weren't real good at that they needed us for that um so after the withdrawal you know from 2011 onward we continued to track the islamic state of iraq and their attacks and it was obvious from their pace of operations that the threat was rising one of the things that the islamic state of iraq was doing was they were attacking prisons right this was a it was it was important for several reasons one their messaging is always with the prisoners is we will not forget you we will do our utmost to free you um they attacked one prison in mosul that i was at in uh, 2008 and freed hundreds of prisoners they did it in baghdad they did it in anbar they did it in salhadin so they were replenishing their ranks then you had the syrian civil war starting to take shape um a very weak border so 
you know, we, you and I, we're looking at this, and we had a lot of concerns. Um, you know, there were yeah, a we're lot- watching we're watching the the number of weekly attacks was spiking all throughout 2012. Um, you know, at a time when a lot of people were spiking the football and the fact that the U.S. wasn't there anymore. Yeah, so. I remember Tom. Do you remember we did a debate over at the was it the Center for New American Security with Peter Bergen? It was just New America. Yeah, just New, New America, America Foundation. I'm sorry. Yes, uh, that's right. Um, and he told us, Bill, you you were in Iraq. You saw that they're defeated. And our response was. That was 2008. This is 2011. Are you watching what's happening? 2012. Yeah, it was 12. 2012. Right. It was yeah. just before the Islamic State rose. So, we're, you know, we were very much on the record for for stating that there is something serious going on. Um, and th- there was one incident um, that really got our hackles up. And this was in the summer of uh, 2012. Uh, the Islamic State went on a rampage in, rampage in Haditha. That's the town I was uh, embedded with in 2005. Um that you had a in the Al the Islamic State they published this video for all of us to see and what you saw was they had a bunch of Iraqi military vehicles Humvees pickup trucks trucks loaded with Islamic State fighters in military gear and they overrun the town they kill the police chief they overrun the police station the chase the military out and they hold on to the town for about an, an for several hours throughout the evening and then they just melt away into the desert and we looked at that and said what the hell was that and it was very clear that they were practicing their operations we had also prior to this time we were tracking islamic state training camps in the deserts as well and you would see guys you know a lot of them going through mili- going through uh you know, doing the military drills. And a lot of people look at that and laugh and go, ha, 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 uh, they're, they're, they're sloppy. Well, guess what? They were good enough to overrun Haditha. And then within a year, they overrun Fallujah and then much of Anbar province. And then, lo and behold, they, in this June, by June 2014, they're overrunning Mosul and Kirkuk and Tikrit and Ramadi and, and all, you know, a whole slew of towns and cities. And they control about a third of Iraq. And you know, it was it was something I feel like, you know, we were sounding the warning bells. Anyone, no one would listen. They were Everybody was pleased as punch that the U.S. withdrew. We ended the endless war in Iraq. But guess what? The Islamic State of Iraq didn't end their war. They had a war across the border that they were able to capitalize, that they were able to recruit, and they were able to reconstitute their networks and take on a weak Iraqi military and a weak Iraqi police and a fractured Iraqi government. And they were able to achieve what no one thought they would ever be be able to achieve. And, you know, just it's so maddening to see people now. They talk about the endless war rhetoric and they act like, they sent the same crowd didn't get their way previously in Iraq because of course they did, you know, I mean, it's not like, you know, it's not like they didn't, it's not like that this vision of the world wasn't put in place. The U S can leave from everywhere. Right. I mean, the bottom line is the jihadis are going to keep fighting, which is what, what we do. We keep our eyes on the jihadis, not on, not, we're not driven by what the U S is doing necessarily. Of course we cover it, but you know, the bottom line is the jihadis get a vote and they got a vote in Iraq and the vote went the, went the, went the wrong way. Yeah. In any and, event, and- the the endless war narrative i mean it's it's it presupposes that the us is starting these wars and if the us just leaves the wars will go away and that do, that's not happening the, the new york times just had a great article on france's problems in the sahel uh, mali and in the surrounding countries and france wants to leave well guess what that war is going to continue there too yeah i mean the bottom line is that it's not 
the myopia here is the idea that these these wars are driven by Western decision making or what the U.S. wants or what you know. Sometimes you see it online, so you know what nefarious warmongers like us want and this type of stuff. I mean, it's just all idiotic, really. I mean, it's stupid. The bottom line is the jihadis, as I said, and I'm repeating myself now, but they get a vote and they've gotten a vote multiple times in the past. And hey, listen, U.S. can withdraw from everywhere. They're they're going to keep on fighting. But you know, the bottom line is, I hope from this week's episode, when we talk about the history of ISIS. You can see, you know, of course the future is uncertain, and again, we don't have crystal balls. But it's easy to look around the world today and see that ISIS and its so-called provinces are still capable of an awful lot of violence each day, everywhere from West Africa to Afghanistan. And in future episodes, we're going to keep continuing to discuss ISIS. Um, you know, we're talking about its uh, contested, you know, adversarial relationship with Al-Qaeda, its competition with Al-Qaeda, plus some areas where the two could possibly cooperate. We haven't gotten that today, but we'll get into that in the future. And we're going to keep tracking the former caliphate and any new attempts by the jihadis to resurrect an Islamic empire. Because that's the bottom line here is that Iraq wasn't the only place where the jihadis have wanted to build an Islamic empire. And of course, they want to do that in Afghanistan, as we've talked about. They want to do it in Somalia. They want to do it in Yemen. They want to do it in West Africa. All these places are in different, different stages of development, but they're all going to be active theaters going forward. Again, whether or not the U.S., France, or whoever else is there or not. Um, so thank you again for listening to this week's episode of Generation Jihad. Please do subscribe to the show. As a reminder, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or anywhere else you listen to your shows. And we'll see you next week. 